Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. So, show? Yeah, we can do that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. We usually end up... Dilly dallying for a bit. That's fine. I wanted to unwind too. I get. I get. Absolutely. I'm a little nervous. No worries. I mean. All right, so we are recording. Yeah, oh, we've been okay. recording for like 25 minutes. Of course we have. Which I means... figured there'd be some fun snippets for you to listen through. Yeah, I'll maybe put some shit up for the Patreon. All right, yeah. you are listening to Recyclables. Uh, I'm your host, Patrick Thomas Perkins. Today. I have two guests with me. I have, uh, as as probably ever, uh, Rochelle Cote. It's Cody. I ain't fancy. Okay. You nasty. Well, Rochelle, <laughs> Rochelle inf- 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 implies some Frenchness, so I, I felt oh, like... Oh, I am very yeah. French, but yeah. that's disgusting. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm not proud of being French, but like we actually have some cousins who do pronounce it Cote, and it's like, hurry, oh. if that's what you need to feel special. <laughs> oh, they're like distant. All right. Before I forget, though, let me, let me introduce <laughs> our second uh, very special, I'm very excited to have her here, Dahlia Bell. Yes. Yes, okay, I didn't know if I threw in the last name or not. I didn't know if you went serial killer like I did or no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just Dahlia Bell. That's that's plenty. Uh, Dahlia is also a comic uh, here in Portland and does a, a bunch of a writer, mm-hmm. uh, just does a bunch of shit, modern day activist, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, by accident. Yeah. Yeah. I no. get looped into it. Oh, accidental accidentalism is all the rage. Yeah. That's <laughs> what the kids are doing. <laughs> I think I think it's a very trustworthy form of power being given to you. It's that whole thing about like if you if you seek out power, I I don't trust you very much. But if you if you're like, oh, God damn it, somebody's going to pick up this mess. Might as well be me. I can respect that. Yeah. yeah, it's like you're at the bar. There's someone who's telling everyone to do versus the one who picks up the beer can after someone yeah. drops it, you know? Yeah, it's I'm the one even, who yells at the person. It's not even so much that I'm like, oh, I guess I have to do this. It's more that people, like, throw a roll of paper towels at me. And I'm like, shit, I'm next to the spill. And then I have to... Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't just let the paper towels fall on the floor. Then I look like an asshole. And you're like, what am I doing this close to Trump throwing them? Nah, that was a dumb reference. I apologize. Yeah, it did make me think of it, unfortunately. I thought of him throwing those paper towel rolls. Was that... Was that in Puerto Rico? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I forgot about that one. No, the, that was a good episode. You're, you're, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that was exactly how I thought of that. As like, this is a great show. This is great television. Uh, less great television. I wanna. I brought. I brought you here today, my friends, because I want our listeners to recycle some ideas about stand-up comedy. Yeah, you heard it first. It's not just about airplane food. It is not. And uh, you two are a couple of my favorite comedians. I would say I've worked. Stop. Uh, the last show I booked, I made sure to put both of you on, so I think that could be pretty heavily implied. Oh, We're thanks. two of our my favorite comics. Yeah, too. honestly. <laughs> I caught that. I caught that. I will say this. One of the funniest things I've felt about stand-up, especially since I moved to Portland, because like, I started in a really small community, so we all kind of knew each other, and it was kind of like a group. 
it's a lot more disparate and, you know, spread out. I don't know who any of these fucking people are. <laughs> oh, yeah. when I If I went to a mic right now, I'd probably know, like, five people. Yeah, just a bunch of rando bozos. But, like, when I moved out here and I started, like, finding the comedians I've liked, it tended to never be people that were in the same group. And, like, if, if I'd been like, let's all assemble, it'd be like, no one knows each other or, like, actively hangs out with each other. So, like... I've always been, uh, I always get confused by the groups of comics that, like, pal around. I'm like, who are you people? I've, yeah, I've never. Weirdos. Right? I've always been an outsider, but I've they always. They were high school bullies. That's, oh. That's, were you mean in high school? That's, I was. It's kind of a lot of what stand-up is, it feels like, is, like, either the bully or the kid that figured out. Like, I figured out, you're not going to pick on me if I can make fun of something faster than you want to hit Exactly. Me. Yep. And so, like, like being, being knowing I'm an easy target, I was always like, all right, we can... And also, like, I can make fun of me better than you can, because I know what's wrong with me. Uh, like, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm here for it. I'm here all the time. You're like, I know the actual explanation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're going to love it when I'm done. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I tended to just, like, join in with the laughter or... You know, act like I was in on the joke as well. So, kind of like Hannah Gatsby, where she talks about like you humiliate yourself so that you can be accepted. So it's like you sacrifice parts of yourself on the altar so that they'll put up with you even though you're different. Oh yeah, for me, I think it was more of just being in so many situations where I was actively hated for everything that I am. So I just learned to love everything about myself. No matter how shitty it is. So you, like, edgelord your edgelorded them? Yeah, like, Oh, you hate it? Well, I love it. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like people who are like, no, I like Uggs. And it's like, no one liked Uggs. No yeah. one, no one liked Uggs. It's, Crocs, I'm I love head. Crocs. I'm all about that Crocs. I fuck life. with Crocs. It's, I fuck with Crocs. Did you see my Crocs. laptop? Croc and roll. <laughs> yeah! Your, your pro, the fact that you, you strengthened yourself that way is, 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 interesting to me because I ended up having kind of the opposite impact where it's like a lot of my doubt and like uh, uh, self-questioning and whatnot comes to the fact that I'm like always thinking of what someone else can make fun of me with and so I'm always trying to react to that in a weird way. Uh. So like I've never I I was totally the kid that everyone was like be yourself and I'm like I can't. What do you guys might hit me? Like Yeah, yeah no one ever told me to be myself. They just hit me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that fuck was, it, I don't care. That was the distinction. I got a warning and it broke me. In a yeah, different way. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I want to I wanna talk about the way I do. There's a lot of books that are like the history of jokes and they're a very broad range. But we, uh, the three of us in particular, I think are familiar with a very specific thing being stand-up comedy. And I want to identify that before I get into the history of it as I found it. And the specific identification I want to make is it is a a person uh, telling jokes at an audience who is gathered there for that purpose. And I know that's a pretty broad definition, but I think it means anytime you want to grab somebody that you think of as a stand-up, you can put them there. Robin Williams is a person who is delivering jokes at an audience because they want him to be there. The Scalar brothers are nominally two people delivering jokes. So you're arguing that open micers are not comedians. Because people don't laugh? 
Because, well, I mean, well, I mean, I guess they, they, I'm counting them because when the audience shows up, they're they're there for the purpose of seeing jokes. It's no, like, they aren't. We attack them. We just <laughs> assault people against their will with jokes. That when they were just trying to have a romantic first date. Hey, gorilla showcases at country clubs in Helen, Montana, go great. No, I'm. They are happy that their dinner was ruined by that. All right, I, I was I was not considering ambush comedy as, yeah. as one of the forms because I always forget that that's a thing people do. Yeah, but but I just mean specifically, it's the idea that it's the person standing on stage isn't telling them to. It's not a, it's not a conversation. Yes, yeah. it's, okay. it's, it's a it's a presentation of jokes to an audience, and if the audience is there, they're there because they know these jokes are going to be told. It's that exact relationship. Okay. Does that I, is that still fit the open mic definition? Am I am I recycling? Yeah, enough no, to... I think you're doing okay. fine. <laughs> I no. think Dolly is just being difficult. That's fair. <laughs> I'm a pedant. Well, no, that's fair. I want to, and and I don't want to have my argument be like the argument because because one of my opinions on recyclables is like I don't know shit. I just that makes. Three of us, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I just like to collect information and stories, and then I'm like, oh, shit. I just oh, to speak for a show. Well, no, that's fine. She's... I mean, that, that needs to happen. I sometimes. mean, you are hanging out with the two of us, so I have to assume you're also a dumb dumb. Yeah. As well, in the sucker. Out. So, to be... To be less dumb, uh, what I did was I looked into... <laughs> well, no, I... To, to be less dumb, I looked at smarter people. Uh, and I look to what's the history of stand-up. And you can find a lot of uh, books about, like I said, a lot of books about the history of comedy going back to, like, the Greek dudes writing stories about, um, um, like, the women having a sex strike to end yeah. wars. Like, some of those things. And and for all we know, like, the ancient Egyptian myths may be jokes. We just don't understand the language, so we don't get the punchline. Well, I think line. there's dick jokes in hieroglyphics. I'm More than likely, sure. Probably. Yeah. But American stand-up, as it is, uh, starts <laughs> off... Uh, the, the person I referred to the most is this guy named Wayne Fetterman, and he has a book called The History of Stand-Up Comedy, From Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle. Now, Bo Burnham, thank goodness. Yes. Uh, his podcast has updated the series. Uh, our, our podcast isn't the such that I was going to bother to buy the dude's book. Right, I wasn't. Yeah, you don't have a budget. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I blew all the budget on CBD soda. That's and I appreciate. You're it. welcome. <laughs> so Wayne Federman also teaches a class at the University of Southern California, USC. Uh, I was not going to take that class because that's you know far away. Also not in the budget. Actually, we did have a college budget, but I'm going to use that for a later episode. Um, he he has a podcast, uh, and I went nice ahead and, cliffhanger. Yeah, and I went ahead and listened to the podcast and uh, read, watched a bunch of interviews with him because he people ask him about it. And so in his book, he can he in all of his interviews, he makes sure and points out Mark Twain isn't actually the beginning. It's just the big name that it's going to sell on a book cover. Nobody's going to go listen to the history of stand-up from Artemis Ward to, you know, yeah. whoever. And he clarifies, too, that before the guy that he pinpoints as the start, America is going through this thing called the Lidocene era, which is there's just a bunch of lecturers anyhow. It sounds boring. Well, there's no fucking TV or radio. And, like, a lot of people are literate or whatever. Yeah. And, like, a lot of people that are... Fr the free people that are available are illiterate, right? And so you have not much in the way of entertainment. So anytime someone comes to town... And I'll, I'll go more into some of my personal theories at the end. But in general, there's people going around either giving, like, speeches on the occult or they're delivering... 
Uh, people, is it speeches or like warnings? It kind of sounds like this is what evolved into modern podcasts. A little. I mean, I mean, it all, it all, it all has roots in this yeah. because it's, it's, it's. You have a book and you go and read samples of it and hope people okay. buy it. You have a new religious or political philosophy and you yeah. want people on that board, so you charge them to come listen. Uh, or you you have some science air yeah, quotes the classic theater yeah. yeah yeah so you do all that so there's some of that going around anyhow and uh, there's also a, a history of people writing either under pseudonyms or just as entire whole personas to newspapers writing to the editor or writing articles out that are oftentimes satirical oftentimes like f- written so as to be funny when you read it so there's humorous you know going back to at least the start of america like when we were colonial there's this guy named artemis ward who writes his name is charles brown mm-hmm. uh but he decides the stage name of artemis ward is a little bit cooler and, and he was right yeah no yes. this is pretty dope and he uh, uh he hears his jokes being told uh by someone else and he realizes I can write my own jokes and tell them uh, to an audience. Like I can, I can do all this work myself and make all the money for myself, right? And then if people see me from the newspaper, they'll be like, "Oh, that guy who writes in the newspaper is lecturing in town." That's brilliant. Yeah, and he he the two things he do, does that I find really that I'm like, oh, like like golf clap at beauty. One is he he's like he he'll title them things like speeches on childhood. And then never mention his childhood. Beautiful. So that's instant comedy. Yeah. Like, so we're gonna talk about my childhood, but first, my aunt May did what? Right. I fucking love absurdity. And then the other thing is, he's the first person to not acknowledge when, or, or to be surprised at least, or, or to to act surprised when you laugh at him. <clears throat> so, so you know how, like, in conversation. When you naturally tell a joke, you, you we've all done comedy enough that when you tell a joke and you don't realize it, it's it's there, there's something special to that. Mm-hmm. There, there's a magic. He acts like that every time, mm-hmm. so he'll he'll walk over punchlines and stuff, and 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 not not acknowledge that the audience laughed until like oh what I what I say, and it's very it's unique in both fashions. Yeah. And so he's kind of ahead of his time. Yeah, and this is and this is like in 1854. Damn. So this is like pre Civil War. This is in like that. Uh, we we've already had an episode kind of discussing a little of Americana history, mm-hmm. but this is when America's kind of divided by the North, the South, and the frontier. And he he makes a, a little bit of a living going along the frontier, which would be like Oklahoma, that area, and then some of the North. So like through New York, maybe Boston. Uh, but what ends up happening is uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, mm-hmm. uh, sees his act. And Mark Twain, near the end of his life, is broke uh, because he's just god-awful with money. Like, he, he falls for every scam. He's he's also, like, a nice guy, so if you have a business idea, he's like, yeah, I'll give you some money, and then you can pay me back later, and then your business fails, and he's out the money, and you're out the money. Uh, or he'll or he'll give loans that people don't pay back. Like, he's, he's, he's just... He's not good with money, but he's a good guy-ish, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and so usually go together. And so what ends up happening is one of his friends, he, he sees Artemis Ward do this thing, and he realizes, oh, I can do that. And he, he plans a world tour of doing that. So, <laughs> and he, he becomes like kind of the first really famous guy to 
perform humorously and intentionally and have people come out because they know Mark Twain is going to tell jokes at an audience that is there exclusively for that purpose. And he goes, he goes on a worldwide tour and makes back all of his debt. Like a number of times has pointed out, like even people that he owed like 20 bucks to, like he was like going around. He had enough. He finally kind of died when he does die. He doesn't die in poverty and obscurity. He dies not wealthy, but comfortable. Right, and and it's a big deal because it it really does go around the world, and uh, I, I when I told Rochelle about this earlier, I, this was the part that really impressed me. There's no microphones, right? yeah. So he's he's in a in a in a stadium or a theater of like three, five, seven hundred, a thousand people. Just so I was walking down the street, <laughs> like like it's that's a lot of lung capacity. Well, I was a theater kid, so it makes sense, but it's still it's still amazing that it's like especially with. I don't assume they were polite because it's like nobody had me- everybody was drunk yeah. in the past. So oh, like, but yeah, Mark Twain would have probably had a megaphone. Yeah, maybe. Well, and like, were they really rude? Because like, I guess I'm just used to the crappy open mic crowds that just don't. Maybe listen. I don't. I don't. So like, I have a hard time believing that you're going to get through to anyone without like a microphone or yeah. a megaphone. <laughs> yeah, I, they, I think he would have had a megaphone, and people were probably more polite. Because like I I, I can't imagine it etiquette. yeah but I can imagine more talk back in that kind of oh thing. yeah so absolutely it, constant hecklers yeah. the the one it's it's uh, uh, anecdotal I don't know apocryphal whichever one of those words it is uh, I don't know the validity of the story but my favorite story is that he did one set uh, trying to drink a glass of water and clear his throat and had them like in the, on the floors rolling and laughing like like <clears throat> all right I'm ready and. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> like just that for yeah. an hour. So, so whatever he did, we don't have transcripts. I yeah. guess is the big deal, right? And so after Mark Twain does his world tour, uh, what happens is kind of what Mark Twain did, which is people see that he makes money at that. Did Mark Twain have merch? Uh, I well, I mean, he had books. I would assume. Okay. Like I assume he yeah. Okay. Sure. But did and he have? Did he have like button up jackets with like? Twain. <laughs> he had like he had like corn cob pipes that have like MT. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm just wondering. <laughs> Jock straps with his face. Huck Finn, like <laughs> you can huckle my berry. All right, I got. Oh my god, I got, I got nothing. But people do copy that. Like they see that that that's a thing, and the style of humorous starts occurring more and more. And another thing that occurs more and more is you start getting these resort setups by wealthy people that are oftentimes rented out when they're not there for other functions. So, like, okay. uh, a family can go there for a Wednesday because the rich guy isn't there the rest of the time. Uh, or lodges start becoming a thing. Like, so why can't we eat the rich? I, I have some recipes if you want to talk <laughs> after the show. Uh, They'll but, be at the Patreon. Don't worry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> sauteed rich uh, but what happens at these resorts is they need somebody to provide entertainment while people are eating and normally what the comedians do is they're in, for the next few decades they're just MCs right mm-hmm. and and the word like the word stand up comic doesn't appear until Bob Hope in like 1940 so there's all this time from like 1860 to there that some stuff happens where there's these comedians or these upfront men, right, mm-hmm. who are performing or masters of ceremonies, yeah. right, mm-hmm. who their main job is is hosting. Like like they're just supposed to get the audience at the right temperature for this act is slow, so let's get everybody simmered down. This act's a little upbeat. Let's tell some jokes. Oh, we've got time to kill. I'll tell some jokes. 
That kind of thing. It's Talk not about my ex-wife. Yeah, mm-hmm. or or you're specifically a jokester that goes up there, and you have like kind of a bought and sold routine. Like you have a series of jokes you tell, and somebody can come along and buy those jokes from you. Somebody can steal those jokes, and you hope you never run into each other. <laughs> like that happens. And some of what happens is this this lodge environment gets emulated in the city because the rich want a little more exclusivity and they want it closer to them, is my theory. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, I think Fetterman phrases it differently than that in his, his things, but that would be my take. Yeah. And as that happens, comedy and all the other art forms that are, that are accompanying it uh, migrate with it into town. So you start getting these big, like, s- sort of city gala events, like dinner events, like, and... As those go on, radio starts happening in the early 1900s, and people start broadcasting them because it's it's a form of entertainment. Like, TV, before before entertainment is able to be sent elsewhere, that's why you're just so excited to see somebody come in and tell jokes yeah. in 18 whatever. Because you've never seen anything else. Yeah, there's not, you, you have the same seven books that your house has always had, and your dad's same nine whiskey stories. Like, you're... <laughs> You're excited for anything. It would be so wild to be a performer at that point where, like, I mean, it kind of feels like when you go to, like, small towns mm-hmm. doing stand-up yeah. where they're just so grateful there and you get paid way better and completely taken care mm-hmm. of. And people are <laughs> in these in these kind of dining hall settings are also pretty excited to see it because it's the end of a long work week. It's that we talked about in Cost of Convenience how there's this era when, like, careers kind of disappear and jobs start coming into focus and a middle class, like there's a vacuum that's created that fills up with a white middle class and they want something to celebrate their ascendancy. I mean, I don't, again, Fetterman doesn't put it this way. That's my interpretation of things, but it's your podcast. You can say what you want. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to put, I don't want to put, when I use his words, can find us in the parking lot after this. Yeah. When I use his words, I want to use his words as his words and use my words as my fair, words. That's fair. all I'm... Yeah, because Fetterman's a hack. <laughs> I mean, he's been around since the 80s, so he's got a lot of jokes for sure. But, so. <laughs> but, but that's when the Catskills eras began in the in the kind of the 1870s to early 1900s, and that act carries over into the city. So those MCs start getting broadcast on the radio. Radio is also creating its own forms of entertainment. So so the what would eventually become kind of the situational comedy is starting to arise. So people who are going into clubs and whatnot are framing characters kind of to pitch as pilots on radio shows. That's where you get Burns and Gracie and and uh, I, I don't I don't know a lot of those older people. And uh, Fetterman does a really good job of covering this era and covering the radio era and covering the TV era. And there really is the the biggest innovation to stand up really is the microphone because it lets you it lets you dominate the crowd in any number of tones, right? And really it, use your your gym teacher voice. Yeah, and it also lets you do kind of it, it, you can do whisper bits. Yeah, and you can talk over people eating and having low conversation a little bit easier because your voice is on the box, so it's like people can do the chatter a little bit. And is it just me or did that song the dude from B fifty twos? What? Your voice is in the box. <laughs> That's my other gig. Rock I, lobster. Rock. Uh, <laughs> um, my friends have always had the idea of uh, B-52's cover band, but you don't cover B-52 songs. You just do other songs <laughs> like B-52's. Is not that more of a tribute band at that yeah, point? Yeah, okay. so it's like, I want to fuck you like an animal. animal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I would see that. I would listen to at least two songs by that before I got bored. Well, hopefully that was usable. 
might keep that in there. Who knows? I like yes. I like keeping our insights in there too. Our, our yeah. digressions are fun. I hope. I don't know. The audience hasn't complained yet. My and sp- also, like you're talking about table chatter, it makes me think like Michelle Wolf talked about what it was like to do the correspondence dinner and how it's like the coldest fucking room because it's all these giant tables of people who don't like being made fun of eating a meal while you're making fun of them. It's it's not unlike that. I would imagine in that kind of radio hall era of of show because it's not exact it's not exclusively yeah. stand up they're oftentimes doing personas or maybe they're coming up with well a bunch of people are loudly having dinner yeah taking orders at full volume yeah there's yeah. probably still the check rush and whatnot but the the other the other innovation uh in Fetterman's opinion is is the creation of the clubs you know <clears> before <throat> the comedy boom uh because that lets people go there that clarifies that the audience is even there more specifically mm-hmm. for that. And it creates a culture and environment of expectation and rules. It also gives it a location that is specific for stand-up. Because before this, you're, you're, you have one of two places you can be. You can be in bars and little clubs. And like if you're a big name, if you're a Carlin, by, by the time the 40s and 50s rolls into the 60s, you fill up a bar real fast and you're kind of losing money as far as people are concerned because you're, you're, you can't monitor a bar the same way you would something else. But you're going to lose money if you go to an amphitheater too because you're going to have empty seats because comedy's cool, but it's not that cool. Yeah. And we also, our cities, cities don't really get, I think, other than like some really major populaces big enough to fill an amphitheater until the 60s and 70s. That's kind of when the boomers finally grow up and start buying stuff for themselves. And things were different before Dane Cook revolutionized the industry. Okay? Yes. And one of the one of the pre Dane Cook, one of the DC one of the PDC <laughs> revolutions was the comedy club. Because you put a microphone in there, everybody's gathered, everyone's telling jokes, and it also lets comics have something to aspire to. Because in addition it, the clubs are evolving alongside a system where people know they can go at first onto radio shows and then eventually onto talk shows like Carson and whatnot, and then eventually onto Comedy Central specials, right? Or the, like HBO specials. Yeah. The target is always moving, but it's generally the same, that you can get to a wider audience if you make it or get found. Wider or wider? Why not both? It's fair. <laughs> it's it's United States history. It's kind of both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that leads into the the next big really innovation after the clubs, because really after after radio turns into TV turns into cable, uh, and and the clubs evolve alongside that. Those are kind of your two goals. You can have you can make a living as a club comic, or you can have a like you become a star in movie or TV or whatever, but then you kind of have that Mitch Hedberg thing of like, all right, you're a cook. Now go raise a cow. It doesn't, it's not always analogous. That's, that's not stand up specifically. So I don't want to get into it. The next big innovation is when YouTube and the internet comes along, specifically YouTube. I said that backwards, but because then you can kind of create your own audition tape. You don't need to go to LA to audition anymore. You can send your video there. And even though that's not, you used to be able to send tapes before, too. So, I mean, tapes have been around, but, like, an easily accessible one that also can be easily made public. 
Yeah. Like, you don't have to get permission from someone for that to be distributed Fact. because yeah. it's going to be on YouTube. Sorry, I didn't mean to overstep no, no, you. I was that's, just that's, like, yeah, yeah, we can out. break into people's houses now. Yeah! yeah no, like, and, and not only that, but, like, you don't... You, you have a bigger fight, but if you can put better production, it's an easier fight. Is, is the, the point I want to, I guess, highlight there. And that's kind of where, where he, he sort of ends on is that, like, the system currently is you've sort of got a few megastars, not like you used to. Uh, his, his argument with Chappelle is that he was one of the people, since he ends the book with that, I want to mention that his argument with ending the book on Chappelle is he's, he's the guy that breaks from clubs to comedy central to movies and, and I don't, I didn't fully understand why he ended on Chappelle specifically, but I think his premise is that it's, it's the first time that it's like, somebody can walk away. I don't, I don't know why he ended on that. Yeah, who knows? I don't, and it's, it's particularly annoying to me because this kind of transitions into the second half of the people's history. Cause Chappelle is just a, a third, Chappelle is another in a long line of somebody seeing somebody do something. And then try to copy it and, and get as far as they can go. Cause yeah. he's just copying Eddie Murphy, who's just copying Ed, Richard Pryor, who's copying fucking Red, Red Fox. Fox. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not that, my black comic archive is not as deep as it could be. I forgive you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the point is that there, to me, the, the innovation really stops once it becomes a platform of you have a kind of mainstream club scene, uh, uh, middle scene of people who can go to bars and whatnot and kind of an underground. And then you have this mega stardom that people can achieve. And really, Richard Pryor could kind of be your endpoint to and begin to modern comedy because he's the first one to release a film yeah. of his material. He's the first one to be like, oh, you can go to fucking pay five bucks at the theater and see this. And like, I didn't realize he was the first person to film his like whole special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really right. I have it on VHS. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's Richard oh. Pryor's. And he's and it's it's crazy. Strange, strange. Yeah. And it's crazy because you can find videotape footage of him in bars still, like on Netflix for a while. That was a bunch of his specials. Was like his early stuff, and it's it's dramatically different. And it's it's part of that is the language and the times, and and the fact that like not the not the language in the sense that like. Yeah, you had to watch his cancel culture language bullshit, but language and that people spoke in a different way in the 60s and 70s than we do now, and then they did in, by the time he released his thing in, shit, I should have it written down, but 70-something, 80-something. The, the language changes so much from the 60s of how we interact and how we're discussing race relations, sexual relations, uh, uh, queer identity stuff, that there's a... Uh, it starts sounding less old-timey by the time he records his special than it does at the start. And I think that's part of why uh, stand-up gets to take off and the club scene gets to take off is because we finally have an American language that's sort of uniform. The South, even though they have an accent, is talking the same way as people in the Northwest. Or at least they're understandable. Yeah, because we've all had radio and television to grow up on. So, <laughs> so like, our, our kind of how we want to talk together happens. Uh, and I want to end with the comedy bust for for kind of this section actually before I go to the people section because I it's important. The comedy bust happens roughly like the comedy <laughs> club bust happens roughly at the end of the '90s and leads to the alternative scene with like Patton Oswalt, Ray uh, Bamford, yeah, uh, Brian Posehn. And what happens? He, I'm not sure exactly what his thesis statement on why it ends this way is, 
but I think what he's trying to say is that kind of the market bursts everywhere, so the market bursts on clubs. Uh, and that's why it, it stops being a thing that you have one in Portland, Salem, Eugene, Medford, Bend, and yeah. it starts being like, I think Salem has a comedy room. Yeah. Like, no offense to Salem, I love Salem well, they, comics. They just opened something some of them. new recently. Yeah, but but my point is there isn't like a chain. There's no, like, no. Yeah. Well, and like, if you look at how limiting comedy clubs are to the people who want to go see comedy. Like, if you're under 21, you likely are not going to be able to get into most comedy clubs. Uh, If there are any sort of financial barriers, it's pretty difficult to get in there. If you don't drink... they're all two-item minimums, and the items are grotesquely overpriced. Yeah, and if you don't drink and aren't comfortable around drinking, it's also really hard to go to a comedy club, because that's that's what they're there for, is to sell alcohol. I I think it's so little about their comedy. Yeah. That's and that's 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 kind of the modern state is is most of comedy revolves around selling drinks at a bar. Most comedy clubs are oh and baskets of chicken tenders. Yeah, exactly. Bars. Most comedy clubs are just bars with bad hours and like high prices, <laughs> like a, a ticket to admission. Like it's, exactly, and and that's that's kind of the modern state. So I would like, I guess, commercial break ish here. Like kind of, kind of. I'm gonna I'm gonna go pee and then we'll start part two with okay. the yeah yeah. So we'll yeah yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> I might let the kittens in. Now, all unicorns are black girls. <laughs> Thank you for picking up recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.